This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm one of the librarians. Thanks for coming. This is the first event of our One Book, One College series. On October 15th, we're going to have a panel discussion of faculty members talking about all the stuff we consume, use, abuse, and throw away. And in November, we're going to be showing Al Gore's movie, Free of Charge, here in the library. So I hope, uh, Inconvenient Truth, hope you can come and uh, join us for that. Our event today, we are very honored, honored to welcome uh, Dr. Jan Hessler. Uh, Dr. Hessler holds the title of Research Professor at the Illinois Institute of Technology. He's a retired physicist from Argonne National Laboratory, which is just down the road from us. Uh, he holds a Ph.D. from Michigan State University, and he's done postdoc work at the University of Chicago. He, over his career, has conducted basic research in chemical physics, which pretty, which pretty much to me means he's very, very smart and knows lots and lots of math. Um, he has authored or co-authored uh, numerous publications, so it's, it's a great honor to have someone like this with us. Uh, in his free time, Dr. Hessler has become an advocate and lecturer on the environment, and um, climate change is one of his specialties, and explaining the issues of climate change to those of us that don't have advanced degrees in mathematics is his specialty. Um, beyond that, Jan is a longtime friend of our library. Um, his wife, Nancy, who's over here, has been a librarian with us for 25 years, give or take, and she's one of the main people responsible for our remodeled facility here. She did a lot of work, and in this space especially, um, we owe um, a lot of thanks for her for helping us put this in place. So with that, I will um, thank Nancy for giving us Jan for an hour, and uh, here's Dr. Jan Hessler. Thanks. Well, thank you, Troy, for that very kind announcement. Can everybody hear me in the back? Are we okay? Uh, before we get going, uh, I don't need that first slide. You can, can read that one. Uh, I would like to put climate change in a broader perspective. Uh, in particular, um, uh, you're, as Troy said, you're going to discuss uh, solid wastes in a panel discussion. You've read the book. Uh, I've got it right up here. A garbage land. Some of you have read that. Uh, there's problems with water. All of these problems are interlinked. Uh, and the, we scientists tend to look at them as one problem. But before I even get into there, I'd like to tell you where science comes from. And I want to answer the question, what is science? This is, a lot of people really don't understand what we scientists do uh, every day. And the answer is, quite simply, we scientists ask questions. If I do this, what will happen? Or if nature does this, what will happen? Those are scientific questions. We never say, this is a good event, or this is a bad event, this is a, a desired event, this is an undesirable event. The scientists don't say that. But we as citizens have got to think in those terms. So that brings us to the second role of the relationship between science, which answers questions, and public policy, of which global change is a significant issue in public policy, and I've got a quote up here from one of the top people, Jim Hansen. Scientists cannot make decisions. 
The public has to make decisions. But we scientists have a responsibility to educate you and share our knowledge with you so that you can make an intelligent decision. So given that little bit of where we scientists are coming from, that's the primary reason I'm here is to help you make these important uh, policy decisions. Now, we've been thinking about this problem for quite a while. In fact, it was thought about in 1833, and there was a very famous publication called The Tragedy of the Commons, published in 1968. And that is, when you have a common uh, resource, such as water, or land, or air, if you don't manage that resource very well, ruin is mathematically inevitable. You cannot escape it. That is the way humans behave. Okay. Now, uh, Gerhard Hayden uh, did that in science in 1968, and he updated that in 98. Uh, but, ah, you can see that. There was a publication back in 1972, and I was fresh out of... Uh, getting a PhD at this time, and I asked a friend, can you give me a book in nonlinear mathematics? And he pointed to this book, Limits of Growth. Uh, there isn't a single equation in that book. Boy, was I disappointed. <laughs> but the number of ideas in the book were really, really important. What they did is, back in 1972, they asked, what is going to happen if the population increases as we use our natural resources, as we pollute, as industry increases its output, our standard of living goes up. What will happen? This is a scientific question. And the answer is, the earth is limited. We only have so many natural resources, and we only have so much ability to clean up our pollution. Therefore, if we continue to use things too quickly, i.e. use our oil too quickly, use our iron too quickly, we will run into a situation where it's going to cost so much money to get our natural resources that we won't be able to afford it, population will go down and society will collapse. And they dub that a population and production increase and then pretty soon these graphs at about 2050 they begin to fall the other scenario is pollution whether it's air pollution CO2 uh, from our smokestacks our water supply doesn't really make any difference and if we pollute so much that the earth cannot recover then the cost of us simply living and breathing will be so high we won't be able to afford it. And again, population will die. Our uh, people will simply die of respiratory diseases. Population will decrease and society as we know it will change. A uh, good example, uh, I'll, I'll save that example for later on. By the way, this book... Troy has promised me he's ordered it from the library. As soon as it comes in, I recommend that everybody, you know, read this. 
uh, and uh, that will make a very good discussion. Okay, the other general thing, a group of people defined a concept called sustainability. Can we support our activities on the earth? And the answer is, we have not been able to support our activities since 1986. It would take 1.2 Earths to support the uh, human activity that we now have today. So we're putting a strain on the world. This strain is both in terms of climate change and in terms of uh, agriculture and in terms of water. All of these things couple together to uh, put this uh, ecological footprint of humanity is 20% above the ability of the earth to sustain that population and its activity. Okay, that is where we fall in the general uh, view of things. Today's topic, of course, is climate change. And so we'll get, this is one of the things that is the pollution that will uh, cause very, very high costs if we don't resolve it today uh, and other things. One of the first things I have to let you know, though, climate is not weather. Okay. People always say, well, it's, you know, it's colder today than, than average. Okay, therefore, there's no global warming. Uh, well, no. Uh, climate, this is weather, the red, and climate is the green, and it's going up. The temperature in Chicago, uh, around there. Here's a graph of the warm nights and, and cold nights throughout the world. 200, over 200 uh, measuring sites uh, throughout the world are used in this. It's basically the number of cold nights is decreasing and the number of warm nights is increasing throughout the world. Now, I have heard a lot of executives and politicians and stuff like that say, we need more research on this area. As a scientist, I say, no. This problem was solved in 1906 by a very famous chemist by the name of Arrhenius. And he put forth a model, and it's very, very simple. The sun shines light down to the earth. It has the complete spectrum. The, the sun's temperature is 30,000. The earth's temperature is 300 in my weird scientific units. Okay, that's like, it's 300 degrees Kelvin outside today. Uh, because my absolute zero is really at zero. Uh, but the earth radiates. Uh, and... Therefore, there's a balance between what comes in and what goes out. If you have clouds, they'll stop stuff from coming in and from going out. But if you have CO2, you will allow stuff to come in, and it will prevent more stuff from coming out. It will radiate back. Therefore, Arrhenius showed that the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere controls our temperature. The other nice thing he showed was if we didn't have any CO2, we wouldn't be here. The temperature outside would be minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. 
or centigrade. I forget which one. But it would be very cold, and we would not be able to sustain life. So CO2 is good if you got the right amount. The problem is, if you got too much CO2, then you run into problems. Uh, okay. The other thing, I've, I've shown you a picture of Arrhenius over there. He did all the chemistry. The physics was done even before by something called, by two people, uh, Navier and Stokes. Navier, a Frenchman, Stokes, an Englishman. They finished their work uh, prior to uh, 1900. So we scientists say, okay, you know, this problem is solved. Well, the fundamental problem is solved. But there are some modern giants of which uh, Charles Keeling is one. As a young man, he started measuring the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And he presented this graph here. CO2 is going up. Okay, so I use him to illustrate the many experimental scientists that have done a superb job in addressing the problem. And then, over at the other side, the group of scientists that use computers. Now, these computers are big. And one of them is at Argonne. And uh, you can read about it in science, but the point is, if all six billion people at the world did 70,000 calculations a second, they would equal the power of this new computer. Now, that's a heck of a lot of calculating that we can do. What that says is, we have a model for the atmosphere now. We can basically improve that model by a factor of a million by, with this new computer. That will be significant. There's another significant change. Uh, we scientists generally publish papers, and very few of them give talks like I'm giving today. And all of this information, though, that we publish in papers is scattered throughout the literature. It would, you know, journals everywhere. Well, a few years ago, they formed a panel, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That gave the scientists the opportunity to put their results in one place. So it provides decision-makers with an objective source of information. It's nonpartisan, it's highly scientific, and it is universal. So when this panel says there's global warming, everybody agrees in the scientific community. Okay, this is just some of the evidence. On the top, I've got the global mean temperature as a function of time from 1850 to the present. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see it's going up. Uh, the second curve is sea level, and the third curve is the snow cover uh, in the northern hemisphere. It's going down. All of these three things uh, go together to say, hey, global warming is unequivocal. Furthermore, through some relatively fancy studies, it is linked directly to our human activity and burning of hydrocarbon fuels, gasoline, methane, diesel fuel, whatever else you want to talk about. I show this because it's one of the most beautiful graphs that the scientists have produced. It's the ice core data which shows the temperature for the last 650,000 years. And it, you know, it runs along, it bounces up and down. 
There's methane, there's CO2, and nitrous oxide. 650,000 years worth of data uh, that they have obtained. Note here at the end, the spikes are going up. Let me combine that with some of the more modern data. CO2 is going up, methane is going up, uh, nitrous oxide is going up, and the Earth's temperature is going up. Now, when you talk with a scientist, the fact that these things are happening is one thing, but we also wish to explain them. This allows us to make predictions. So what we've done is we've found, we try and identify what is the source of the rise in temperature. These are the results. They're rather detailed. What I want to take home is the worst actor is CO2, carbon dioxide. This is all of this stuff put together. This curve over here is global warming. This little tail over here is the probability for not having global warming. It's all to the right-hand side. It's, uh, you know, that there's no question there. Okay, where does this stuff come from? If we're going to solve this problem, and you might not perceive it as a problem, maybe for you, global warming is fine. But uh, some of us think it's a problem. The answer is, those are the gases, but we're using them in agriculture, forestry, energy supply, transportation, our residential homes and commercial buildings, and in industry. That's where we are using and producing the emissions, the vast uh, majority of which is CO2. Now, to answer these scientific questions, what will happen if the Earth gets warmer? Well, in terms of the water, glaciers store most of the fresh water in the world. If the glaciers go away, 30% of the people in the world will not have fresh water. Okay, that is a major problem. With our ecosystem, 20 to 30% of the plants will become extinct if we exceed between two and a half and, and one and a half and two and a half degrees centigrade. In terms of food, the farmers in Canada are absolutely delighted because they will be able to have a better growing season. Their products will be better. We in the state of Illinois will be able to produce good watermelons, which we can't grow uh, in Illinois anymore. However, that goodness will be short-lived, and we will soon um, be too warm. The other one, which is a, a big problem, is many millions of people will be flooded. And we in Illinois have tasted a little bit of that in the last couple of weeks with all the rain that came here from Ike. Well, that is a natural consequence of the warmer water in the ocean making stronger hurricanes. I don't recall in my lifetime when a hurricane had that much impact on a city this far north. Okay, uh, It may have occurred back in the year 1900 when the big hurricane hit Galveston. I, I really don't know. But in, in my, my time, this was a, a, a big impact. But 
I think it's uh, the, the number of people that live within 200 miles of the coasts of the United States, the East Coast and the West Coast, absolutely phenomenal. So you start destroying their homes. There's a calculation by a group in Munich that said natural disasters, hurricanes, floods in the Mississippi Delta, just to repair their damage will take the entire gross domestic product of the world in the year 2050. That is to say, all of the money we earn will go into fixing the stuff nature destroyed. No research, no education, no automobiles, just repair the bridges, but why need bridges? Nobody's going to be able to drive a car, okay? Not a good situation. Also, uh, human health. There have been some studies by the Illinois uh, uh, Radiological uh, Society. They're worried about uh, cardiopulmonary things. The number of deaths in Chicago will increase by about 100 for every million people because the temperatures will go up. Okay. Now, my scientist says 100 deaths per million people. That's a scientific statement. My, as a human being, says, that's not good. Okay, that's where, that's the difference where society and science uh, meet. Okay, now, we like to make projections. Uh, so, that's what uh, we scientists do. And the IPCC has made some of these. These are some of the projections as a function of time for the mean surface temperature. We're sitting about right in here. And note, in terms of these different scenarios, they're all at the same spot right now. But as we go forward, we can make decisions. And depending upon those decisions, we can follow this curve is where we're going to go if we stop burning all hydrocarbon fuels today. That's not going to happen. The best we can do is something like this. Maybe that. This red curve here is what we call business as usual. If we do absolutely nothing, this is the trend that we will take. Uh, temperatures will be four degrees higher than they are today. 100 years from now. Uh, now, for, uh, I don't think that's very good. However, what I do want to share with you is what will it take to uh, make things a little bit better? The answers are, in terms of the IPCC scenarios, population growth has to be low. In terms of economic development, we really have to change the structure of our economy to become more service-oriented. Not as much junk produced by industry. Not as many gadgets and trinkets and stuff like that. Furthermore, in terms of technology, we have to introduce clean uh, and efficient technologies. If we don't do that, then we will follow the other scenarios like high population growth, uh, turns out population growth and economic uh, development are sort of inversely reported. It's the 
poor people of the world that have the most children, not the rich people of the world. So as, as families become poorer and poorer, they will have more and more children. This is a natural response. Uh, we can't have that happening. Uh, so, or at least some of us feel that that's not desirable. Now, I started out this talk with a uh, uh, discussion of the, the limits of growth, and they published that in 72. They came out with this 30-year update in uh, uh, 2002, uh, and they ran calculations that said, okay, what do we have to do to be sustainable? What type of world can we create that we could all live in? And they did find a world that will support 8 billion people. The current population of the world is 6 billion people. Therefore, we can, we can tolerate an increase in the number of people. It is also possible that the standard of living of these 8 billion people will rise. Uh, that is to say, you know, the standard of living of the people in Africa will come up tremendously. Standard of people in Orland Park, Illinois, and Downers Grove, Illinois, will probably stay the same. You can't get it much better than we've got it right now. Uh, there. Uh, and we can have a continuously declining ecological footprint. Okay, this is what some of the predictions state. However, what is it going to take to achieve this? Well, today we have to fix population growth at two children per family. I mean, you just cannot tolerate the continuous growth in the population as it stands now. Now, in that, this might sound a little funny. Well, we're going to go up to 8 billion. We got 6 billion at two per family. The answer is the number of people that are born are going to have a better life. They're going to be healthier. They're going to live longer. And therefore, the number of people that will reach the childbearing age that are born will go up. Okay, so we have to account for those kinds of subtleties in what's going on. The, uh, and, and that's taken into account in here. The other thing we have to do is we have to fix the amount of industrial output per person in the world. We cannot have infinite economic growth. Now, there are a bunch of people on Wall Street that disagree with the scientists, and they're opting for a big bailout so that they can continue their wild and wild economic growth uh, and things like that. Sorry, can't do that. That's just, that's just asking for society to, to go to pot, if you will. The other thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get serious about pollution abatement. That is to say, stop putting out CO2 uh, wherever it comes from. Uh, stop polluting the waters. If the people don't have clean water, well, they're not going to be healthy. We're going to have to increase the amount of usable food in the land, uh, better use of arable land. We're going to have to protect the lands that we already have. 
And we're going to have to conserve our non-renewable resources, i.e. oil, gas, stuff like that. Now, there are many people in industry that say, no, Dr. Hessler doesn't know what he's talking about. And I say, yes, I do. Are you aware that in the United States, domestic oil production peaked in 1986? We don't have any more oil within the United States. That's why they want to drill on the North Slope. And that's why getting oil from foreign countries is so important. That's why we might end up going to war for Middle East oil. We ain't got it in the United States. Okay? So either we uh, cut back and conserve, or we get into problems. But the nice thing is, it is doable. Okay? Uh, we can pull this off, if you will. Uh, that's one on responsibility. I'd just like to put this one up. It stresses what is, what is the major problem that we have. You always hear about the connection between gross domestic product, i.e., how much each and every one of us gets out of the economic pie. In the United States, that piece is about 40,000 U.S. dollars. Okay. That's the per capita GDP in the United States of America. Now, let's make a little graph. Let's calculate that per capita GDP for all the nations in the world as a function of the per capita CO2 output. There is a direct correlation. The higher the amount of money each of us has, the higher the CO2 output. It's going up like that. That black line is a curve that uh, goes right through all of those data points. This curve can be called an efficiency. How efficient is a nation at producing gross domestic product? Well, Germany is 3% lower, which means it's 3% more efficient than the average nation. France is 67% lower. The reason for that is France has a lot of nuclear power plants. Okay? The bad news, and I almost fell off my chair when I made this graph, the United States is 25% away we are 25% less efficient than almost all the other nations in the world. That is very startling. The reason for that, we have too many bloody automobiles. They're the ones that are producing the vast majority of this CO2. Another startling fact, China, this backward nation, it's not as good as the rest, but it's only a negative 10%. China is more efficient in the, than the United States in producing GDP per ton of CO2 emitted. Okay? They got a lot of people, but they're making GDP for all those people with far less CO2. 
Now, I always like to live on a leave on a positive note, and there are things that we could do. Uh, so, uh, I I did uh, take this from a very good book that I haven't mentioned, uh, David Goldstein's Saving Energy, Growing Jobs, uh, published by Baytree Publications in 207. And I've added some of my own. I personally think improvement in education is one of the most important factors for solving this or any other problem. And the reason's quite simple. You have to have a knowledgeable electorate if we scientists are going to go out make our case, and then you're going to go to the polls and vote. If you're not educated, you won't be able to understand the arguments, you won't be able to weigh the issues, and you won't be able to vote intelligently. So you owe it to your grandchildren to get a good education. Furthermore, an innovation is going to help technology move forward. You don't have innovation with an illiterate society. It simply can't happen. Because the scientist, he might make the computer, but if the computer goes over there and you can't run the computer, that's no good. You have to know how to use the technology to, to innovate. Also, uh, th these are some details we have to begin to promote innovation. Uh, we've got to eliminate our business, our market mentality. Markets just don't cut it. They're too... F they, they don't have a long view. They've got a view of about maybe a quarter. That is, you know, three months if the executive is long thinking. Most executives can't think three months in the future. Uh, and what we have to do is we have got to resist the political and economic forces that suppress competition. Okay, You can't be giving a cartel to this company because they paid your political bills uh, and things like that. Okay. So that, and furthermore, and this is a problem we've had recently, and every professor knows this, you have to value results more than ideology. Okay? It's the results is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, now, I started this talk with, with what can we personally do? Well, you can do things at home. And you can do things in your local community. For example, uh, Troy's father-in-law is the mayor of a, a city, and uh, he's working to get uh, wind uh, electricity generating for his city uh, and working on legislation there. I'm working to get my city, Downers Grove, to be what's called a cool city. That is, we're going to, as a city, reduce our CO2 emissions. Uh, on the state level... They have been uh, uh, quite a few things going on. The state has put forth about 20 aspects that the state of Illinois can do, and I'm going to talk about one of those later on. What I want to say is there are a lot of solutions. There is no silver bullet. I've heard in the press, let's have a Manhattan Project on global warming. What you don't realize 
the day the Manhattan Project started, the scientists knew what the answer was. It was just a question of doing it. Well, this, we don't have that silver bullet, okay? And therefore, we've got to pick the solution for the situation. Okay, in terms of what can you do personally? I had a hard time finding a parking spot when I came here. <laughs> You're all aware of that. Boy, you know, lots and lots of cars. Well, I'd like to see two things. I'd like to see a streetcar go between the city of Chicago and Moraine Valley Community College, right down 107th Street. We had these things 50 years ago, and we gave them up. They're the best mode of public transportation that I know of. And I have data. When I was a little kid, I was in Detroit. My cousins would come to town. We'd go to the Detroit Tigers baseball game. When I was really young, we went on a streetcar. As, as they cut out the streetcars in 1957, I then had to go on the bus. It took me longer to go from my house to the Detroit Tiger baseball stadium on a bus than on a streetcar. The reason is, those buses weave in and out of traffic. The streetcar went right down the middle. But more importantly, a streetcar is 100 to 1,000 times more efficient than an automobile. I can go from my home in Downers Grove to IIT 100 times via Metra and the L for every one time I take our Prius. Okay? Those are fantastic numbers. So let's get streetcars bringing you to class. Uh, on the personal level, we have cars today that get 60 miles to the gallon. It's trivial technology. What I would suggest the next time you need a car, you demand that it get 35 miles per gallon. And if it doesn't, just walk out the door. Don't argue with the salesman. Vote with your feet. 35 miles per gallon or no sale. Okay? Also, you know, less reliance on cars. Now, what can we do at Moraine? Uh, I don't see Dr. Crawley in the audience. He's, he's a very busy man. He might not be here. Okay. One of the options put forth by the state of Illinois was that municipal buildings should have all of their energy renewable, either in terms of solar panels, wind turbines, or geothermal heat sources. Okay? And now that is a goal of the state of Illinois. What if the engineers here at Moraine said what we want to do is we want to replace all of our electricity, our air conditioning, and all of our energy utilization that we now buy from Commonwealth Edison. We want to replace that with solar panels, wind, or geothermal, and then sell the results back to the state of Illinois. And what if the engineers came up with a plan and then Dr. Crawley went to the state and said, Hey guys, 
Let's make a pilot project. Let's test this idea out. We will totally convert, totally retrofit. We'll keep track of what's going on, but we will go completely green. I'm willing to bet there are legislators in Illinois that would give Moraine Valley Community College the money to do that. But you got to be first in line. If you're second, they say, no, we're doing that over there. Okay? I mean, I know how this system works. I was in it for 40 years. Okay? Uh, but I think this would be doable. And I think we could actually... I don't know the ratio of solar to wind to geothermal. That's the engineers here at Moraine are going to determine that. Uh, but I think it's definitely something that needs looking into. So I'd just like to conclude with uh, a, a little summary. The scientific community has stated unequivocally, and this statement comes from over 2,500 scientists throughout the entire world. Global warming is unequivocal. It is induced by human activity, which is the burning of our hydrocarbon fuels. Gas, methane, propane, the things. There is a true link between economics and pollution. And we in the United States are 25 less efficient than other nations of the world. In particularly the industrial nations, the wealthy nations of the world. And you can have economic growth, population growth to a limit, if you have and uh, technology growth. However, we cannot respond the way we have been responding in the past. In fact, this uh, book, The Limits of Growth, uh, the 30-year uh, update, they actually list some things that are necessary. We have to have some visions, some ideas, some innovation. Networking. You've got to be able to communicate not only to your classmates, your professors, but the people in Europe, the people in China, and the people in Africa. What are your ideas? Stuff like that. And you got to tell the truth. Okay? Uh, there's no room for bullshit. Okay? <laughs> there really isn't. <laughs> uh, and, and we have to stand up and say, hey, if you're not telling the truth, go away. And the other thing is, and I've said this before, education is paramount. Okay? And following, they have a whole section on we have to treat one another uh, in a very positive way. You know, our Constitution says, you know, these are, uh, all rights are inalienable. I add to that, every person has an equal right to pollute. We in the United States and the people in Africa, we have to develop that type of mindset. I thank you for your attention. I thank you for your invitation, and I'll be happy to answer questions.
Dr. Hustler, thank you very much. My question is, um, it seems that lately that proven facts have become somewhat questionable. And in your career uh, of 40 years, when did you notice this sort of trend that exists now where science is almost treated as opinion and that it's something that can be questioned and that these facts that, that all these scientists have proven um, are somehow questionable? Uh, I think that has begun to occur in the last 20 years. I think it's also true that support for asking fundamental questions, especially in this country, has been deteriorating for 40 years. Uh, we at Argonne have not hired any U.S. educated scientists in the last 15 years in our division. They're all educated elsewhere. China, Korea, Europe, and I have publications where those are my co-authors. So, you know, that's my personal experience. Anybody else? Yes. Just yell it out. Uh, the question was how w we are all competing with one another. How can you get everybody to work together? That, I think, is a very good question. The answer to that is going to be we're all going to have to work at convincing ourselves that as a group it's better for us to work together than to compete in the individual marketplace. That talk that I mentioned, the tragedy of the commons, the end result of competition, competition, as you spoke, is ruin. The only way we're going to survive is by cooperating. And there are actually some biological examples. The spinner dolphin is the best one that comes to mind. If the spinner dolphins didn't cooperate and swim as a group, the sharks would eat them. They'd be extinct today. But it's by cooperation that they have survived. That is a lesson that we have to learn. There's also a publication in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that was done in Germany. They play games. In game theory, if you educate the people on the consequences of climate change and on the opportunities to change it, they will cooperate because in the long run, their life will be better. Okay? Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.